Welcome to show number one of Film Matters, the podcast where we discuss film in light of faith. We believe that the stories that we tell can help us better understand our humanity and relate more effectively to God and to each other. Today we're discussing the 2013 film Snowpiercer by South Korean director Bong Joon-ho. On each episode of Film Matters, we will have a wonderful panel assembled especially for the task of discussing the selected film. My name is Jason Weedle. You'll hear my voice on this show as well as other Media Scorch Network podcasts. Today we also have joining me Kevin Miller. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. When, when Good to not, be here. When you're not talking to us, what do you do? Uh, I kind of have one foot in the world of filmmaking, one foot in the world of publishing. So I uh, make different types of films, and I do a lot of writing and editing. Fantastic. And Chris Williams, thank you for joining us today, Chris. When you're not here talking about movies, what are you doing? I write film reviews for an upstart magazine here in the Detroit area called Local Celebs and on my personal site. And I co-host a podcast with a couple couple friends out here. And also Terry Cranford-Smith. Welcome, Terry. Hi, my name is Terry Smith. I'm a pastor of a faith community on the west side of Atlanta called Church of the Misfits. And we are just that. Uh, we reach out to the uh, LGBTQ and postmodern folks in a very rural part of Georgia. Uh, I'm a agitator in chief. I <laughs> preach sometimes, but I prefer that term, the agitator or uh, instigator of our faith community. Well, today we're talking about Snowpiercer. Just for kind of a quick uh, synopsis, Snowpiercer was released in 2013, although it didn't come to most of our attention until 2014, last year, where it because it started to um, get a wider release and get some real positive attention from critics. Um, the movie is kind of a uh, it's kind of science fiction. It's kind of it's kind of a lot of different things, but it really follows the story of a train which is, holds all of humanity as it's traveling uh, really around the world on a world that's been devastated and is completely frozen after humanity's failed attempt to stop global warming. So the film follows the story of the oppressed people who start at the tail of the train as they're fighting their way from car to car through the train in order to free themselves by getting to the head of the train. Um, the film is very allegorical. The film has a lot of, of themes going on, just as well as being a just kind of an exciting action film. So like to hear from both of you guys what were your kind of basic impressions of this movie i think it's got a lot going on chris what do you think i i love this movie i saw this opening week when it came out here in the detroit area i think i sat in an auditorium with five other people at an wow. evening show it was it was empty and i just i became evangelistic about this movie just telling everyone they had to go see it uh, I was actually kind of surprised to look back at my top ten list from last year and realize I hadn't placed it on there. Um, I guess I liked Guardians of the Galaxy more, which I'm kicking myself for that. But, um, yeah, I love this movie. It's just – it's such a visionary film. Um, it, it's – every time I sit down, I want to see something I haven't seen before, and it, it just does so much with this premise. Um, I love the look of every train, how everything's different, and the color changes, and it, 
it goes through so many different ideas. Every action scene is choreographed differently. There are brutal fights. There are long shootouts. But it's also a movie with something to say. And I think that it sticks to the ribs better than most dystopian movies. Um, it has something to say. It is gloriously unsubtle about it. And I, I think it, the, the way Bong Joon-ho manages this crazy tone with this angry story, just it really works. It's I, Watching it again, I was just amazed how well this film delivers. Yeah. You know, just as you're talking about Top Ten, I just today saw – a list of critics who had put this on a top 10 of 2014 and it was it was amazingly exhaustive so a lot of folks like it it's uh, fantastic kevin what do you think well i think you guys just put me in the minority because uh i wasn't really that impressed with it i, I feel <laughs> it was a very it was it was very much like a train in that it was extremely linear and um just kind of one dimensional so i you know i grew up really enjoying uh, kung fu films and that sort of thing. So I, I enjoyed some of the action sequences. I enjoyed, you know, certain aspects of the, you know, the visuals of the film and that sort of thing. But I felt that by and large, especially the ending to me was a huge sort of, um, letdown <laughs> and just, uh, you know, somebody breaking down crying and, and telling his whole backstory. Like I really think a film thrives on mystery and pulling us deeper into a mystery. And when we find the answer to one question, it suddenly introduces 10 more. And, and I felt that what this, this film did was continue to take something that started as a great mystery and make it less and less mystical until we finally get to the root of it. And it's actually a, a big disappointment. Hmm. Um, but, but I think allegorically, um, you know, it's kind of interesting in terms of the idea of the revolutionary who finally gets to the front of the train. And, and the question is, now what? And so I, I think that kind of speaks to this whole 99%, 1% thing, this idea of, you know, revolutionaries, if they actually were given the reins of power, what would they do with them? And it, you know, probably wouldn't take long before they either uh, derailed the train, which is society, or became the very thing that they were fighting against because they suddenly have to cope with the real world decisions that leaders face rather than just, um, holding up placards and complaining about problems. So I think that there's there's some social commentary there, definitely. But, yeah, it's so ham-fisted, it has to be intentionally ham-fisted. Um, and I don't know enough about the director to know kind of what, what sort of things fascinate him. But, but clearly, having lots of fun visually is his forte. So I tend to lean towards dystopian literature and film uh it's just what i love and in that genre snowpiercer is easily in the top five modern dystopian film in my opinion just just the overall story arc of turning turning the world upside down in a very literal way but even in the essence of like leadership that uh chris evans's character had he was still a cog in the wheel of the machine. Like he, but uh, I won't go into too much of my interpretation of the film. But overall, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Probably easily in my top ten films of all time. And definitely in the Sopian genre specifically, easily in the top five. I thought, I thought it was very interesting that this did get such critical reception, such positive reception from critics. Because I, I very often feel like kind of message movies don't get good reception. And well you you know what the you know what the message is 
Um, like the message is to Harvey Weinstein, Hey buddy, this is our chance to stick it to you. Cause Harvey, <laughs> you know, uh, wanted to, you know, he fought the director to make changes. And so I think that there's sort of a felt obligation to get behind this film. Um, because it's the little film, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's oddly enough, it's about a train cause it's the little engine that could, um, it's a film that Harvey prevented from having a wide release because the director refused to make the changes Harvey wanted to make. Yeah. I, I think the, the fact that it did well with critics, it didn't really surprise me. Um, I, I think it is, it, it's kind of common to say that critics will go after genre films, but I think it's more this response to seeing something that's the same over and over where, you know, critics are, sitting there every week watching the same superheroes chase the same blue light in the sky. They get tired of that after a while. But I think any time you can show them something new and exciting, they'll they'll catch that, especially if it's being ignored. Um, I, I think of the one of the most highly acclaimed films of this year has been Mad Max Fury Road, which is the fourth movie in a franchise, and it's one of the best movies of the year. Um, because it shows you things you haven't seen in a long time. And I think Snowpiercer does that enough where critics were willing to to pay attention. Uh, Bong Joon-ho had gotten a lot of acclaim for his previous movie, The Host. Um, he has a really interesting way of putting these visuals together. And, yeah, I think the controversy with the Weinsteins kind of galvanized critics a little bit, too, because anytime they can stick it to him will be uh, something they want to take up. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring up Mad Max because, I mean, I thought it was a phenomenal film, but it was phenomenal for atypical reasons in that I think George Miller kind of said, to hell with narrative, and we're not even going to make Mad Max the star of his own movie. And uh, it's the funny thing is I don't know how many people really notice that, that he's kind of a minor character in his own film. But I, I think that I really respect filmmakers who take chances and who – are trying to push limits visually and that sort of thing. But, but again, I, I don't know if I would put Snowpiercer in that category for me because it partly, I think it's, it's, it's being constrained by a budget, but it's again, the fact that it takes place on a train. And so it can only, it, it, it can only inevitably move forward or backwards. Um, I guess until the train potentially derails, I won't say whether it does or not for people who haven't seen it, but you know what I mean? Like, I just feel that it's uh, it, it automatically, to me, narrows the whole vision of the film. Now, a friend of mine brought up the fact, though, that perhaps uh, people in Asia view trains differently than people in North America. Um, maybe there's a and, and there's a circular element to it as well, which I think is interesting and an inversion of the arc story. You know, if you want to talk th- about things from a, uh, you know, a biblical point of view that, you know, instead of the beginning of humanity, um, we have the end of humanity and there, you know, there's a remnant that's, that's back, but, but life on this arc maybe isn't so good. Yeah. It was the first time I saw it, the thing that I took away and the thing that I thought about the whole time was just kind of the, the social aspect, the division of the privileged people from the poor and oppressed people and their struggle to, to get to the top. And that's that's nearly all I really saw. And I thought it was really interesting rewatching it that there's there's a lot of there's religious themes going on. When you talked about the Ark, they actually refer to the train as the Ark. There are kind of some some Gnostic themes going on. There's a lot of similarities to the Matrix and I, I didn't think about that at all in the first watching. Just that idea of the fact that there is this character who is who is the 
engineer and the creator of the train and is almost seen as a deity on the train, and yet he is also seen as evil, and he is the one holding this whole society back from true reality. That's a very uh, Gnostic formula going on, very similar to The Matrix. Any, anybody else see any any religious themes going on throughout the movie? Well, the theme you just brought up, the very Gnostic themes there, I, I saw that, but it was actually my wife who kind of prompted me to that. Um, when it was revealed that the engineer, that Wilford was Ed Harris, she kind of made a comment, oh, is that the only role he's playing these days? And I kind of stopped. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, what's well, the exact same role that he played in the Truman Show? Yeah, yeah. And I started to think about that and that, you know, you brought up The Matrix and I actually – I rewatched the Truman Show last year and found a lot of themes in there that I thought were very, very compatible with The Matrix. And here he's doing the same thing. He's created this system where he's, you know, he's the god. He has control, and everyone puts their trust in him, and he will keep the train running. He'll keep the show going on. Um, but really what happens is keeping that system going and keeping it on track and moving, it takes precedence over the people who it's supposed to be serving. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing that really struck out was um, really comparing that to the Truman Show where it's, you know, he's got to keep the show online and it doesn't matter what Truman wants, how he's going to be fulfilled. He's got to get those ratings, keep the show on. Same thing here. That train has to keep moving. And there's a whole world outside that they're told is going to kill them. And we find out that might not be the truth. They may be able to get off. But no one wants to get off and stop that system. Yep. The the two characters, um, the Asian father and daughter, are the only ones who really are looking outside of the train. Everyone else is very they're they're either they're looking forward or backwards, and no one is looking side to side. And uh, I think that's an interesting idea. And just from a, a societal point of view, that those at the bottom were only looking forward and those at the top were really only looking backwards and concerned about keeping the, the structure going. The, the father and daughter, who were really from, actually from the middle of the train, had this perspective that was different from everybody else. So we've talked a little bit about just the, the allegorical themes in the film and um, it's got some different stuff going on, but how, how do you guys feel about the the use of s that kind of symbolism in storytelling? I'm not a huge fan of allegory because I feel that what it ends up doing is beginning with a message and then the story exists to illustrate the message. And that it what ends up happening then is the message constrains the characters, it constrains the story. And so I always... I teach screenwriting uh, to students at various places, and I always use the comparison between uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who are contemporaries. And, you know, Lewis used allegory, and so there's these, you know, one-for-one -one notes in, in terms of his stories, what they represent in the real world, whereas Tolkien really just set out to try and tell a really good story and was dependent on the story itself to arrive at its own form of truth. And and so I would I would definitely lean towards... Um, just trying to tell a really good story to try and put characters in situations where they're having to work out moral dilemmas and, and seeing where they end up and, and that letting the story or the message arise from the story rather than imposing it from the top down. Yeah. So is your perception of, of Tolkien's writing that he, that message did emerge from it and he didn't have that 
I, my expectation it, of Lord of the Rings is that he would have started with this idea about power, although it's not a direct allegory like Aslan is Jesus. Well, again, is yeah, I think there's a difference between allegory and metaphor. And okay. so um, I think Tolkien, and this is true, I think, of any writer, is you're, the deeper you get into your work, the more you begin to understand what it's about. Because I think initially you don't have any idea. You just are following an inclination, a gut feeling, an image. And, you know, as it begins to mature and grow in your mind, I think you're able to step back and look at it, even on the page. And you start to see yourself gravitating toward images. And then you'll go back and self-consciously develop those. So, yeah, if you want to talk about Tolkien, I think, you know, he's very much being critical. I would say sometimes I, I, I tell people I think the hobbits are, you know, America, you know, and it's isolationist strategy during World War II and that sort of thing that they're, you know, just how do we engage with the world? Um, or, you know, anyway, I think that there's a lot going on there in terms of social commentary, but I've read interviews with him where he eschews that sort of thing, that he never began that way. He began with just wanting to see if he could tell a really good story. Here's my issue with modern film and literature as a whole. I think it fails in the aspect of character development. I don't really have a strong attachment to any of the characters in Snowpiercer. What attracts me to the film is the story that it tells. When you use allegory, you lose some of that personal relationship that you might would have or a personal tie that you might would have to any specific characters. Right. Because you're committed, rather than the, to the character, you're committed to the playing out of the story. And, Does that make and, sense? Yeah, and both parts suffer, both the... Both the both the message and the story suffer. You know, you, you try to you try to make the Chris Evans character in in this movie too much like Jesus. The symbolism suffers and the character development suffers. You try to make Superman too much like Jesus. It's not a good story and it's not a good representation of Jesus. <laughs> I would never consider uh, Chris Evans's character as uh, anything divine. If anything, he's a misguided prophet. <laughs> I, I think misguided. there was there was a bit of this is a savior character. There's a there's a scene really close to the end where he holds up his hand by his head and he's got this wound through his hand. Did anybody notice that? I have seen people write about that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes maybe it's a stretch, but I think almost any time in film that we see somebody who is kind of a sacrificial character who uh, has wounds on their hands, there's some kind of allusion to Jesus going on or some kind of Christ kind of character. If Evans in this movie is Jesus, then who is who is God? Who is the one that sends Jesus to be uh, sacrificed? We yeah, have Gilliam. So, yeah, it doesn't really hold up as Christian allegory. Um, well, but there is there is his mentor in the back of the train, right? I mean, oh, but Gilliam, but Gilliam was not the good guy that we think he was. The first thing that he tells Evans is, "Don't let Mister W talk. Cut out his tongue." Remember that? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and Gilliam also is revealed to be complicit in the whole thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, because when I when I knew we were going to be talking about this, that was the first thing I jumped to because I hadn't seen the film in a while. I'm like, oh yeah, Gilliam. He's he's a Christ figure because he has that that we remember him cutting off or being told that he cut off his arms and mm -hmm. to feed the other people, and that's a very Christ-like image. But he's complicit in the whole thing so that breaks yeah, down he's complicit in the evil uh, like or or mr well, I guess I, says he is 
I'm just I'm just sort of responding to you had said who sends if Chris Evans character is Christ who sends him who's the father and while I think just from a symbolic point of view you could say Gilliam is the father that sends him you know if if you're trying to find that kind of structure yeah. well and, I, I mean the matrix has has very obvious correlations to kind of a a Jesus savior kind of thing and absolutely and, and you know we have kind of this Jesus character and this father character and but still, the metaphor breaks down, and there's no yeah. there's no perfect symbolism. I think it breaks down um, because of something Terry said earlier that Curtis is revealed just to be a cog in the machine. Sure. And I think there's yes. a little bit of misdirection that happens that we we tend to think that Curtis is in the end our hero. He's the one who saves the day or rights all the wrongs. And I think it, what this movie very cleverly does is kind of plays against what we normally see. I mean, in this we have what we would typically have, which is the white American savior going to save the downtrodden. And I mean, in this case, it's literally Captain America going to save the day. <laughs> um, but Jason, you had mentioned before the idea that Curtis and everyone else is just looking forward and back. And it's Nam and his daughter are the only ones looking outside the train. And in the end, in the end, we realize that, you know, when Curtis gets to the front of that train, he's just going to probably replay the same scenario over and over until he decides to, you know, things are just so bad that he has to rescue the child. But it's it's Nam who has the first idea that his whole idea all along is that he's going to blow up the train the only way to right the system is to destroy it. And I think that's where the allegory works because that's a very incendiary theme. And I think to make that work, like if you just had a movie that said, go out and destroy society, um, people would not go for that. Um, But by dressing it in allegory, I think that helps the message go down a bit. He can say something that's, you know, when you think about it, when he's saying the system will never work, the the only option is destroy the system allegory helps that go down a little bit easier yeah, yeah. so let's yeah. talk a minute about kind of the the social the social message here and not so much of maybe the religious ideas but you know there is certainly things going on here about class and social structure what do you what do you come away with in those ideas does, does it does the movie communicate something effectively do we come away with positive ideas about what we do in society or about society's problems I think the only good, like, social message from this film is that uh, to think that we're going to restructure society, as uh, Curtis's character believes, is, it's just inept. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's not an adequate ideology. The only adequate ideology is Nam's consensus. It's that the only way for there to be anything good come out of this train is for in the is in the death of the train. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think the film paints a very very bleak scenario for what we could do to solve basically the global problem, which is break the system. I mean, it's stop doing the things that keep you know that put the system above people. Um, you know, we. We we often say this is just the way things are. This is you know we've got to keep the system going, keep keep culture moving, because that's just the way it is. And we don't think about 
the fact that there are people who are trampled under our culture, trampled under our system. And I, I think the movie basically says you break it um, because yeah, it's just a cycle. I mean we like to say that the children are the one – our children are the ones who will clean up this mess. But if you look at the children in this movie, they're being indoctrinated. They're being taught – you know, keep the system going. Praise the system. Praise Wilford. Yep. Um, I, I mean, it's 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 a very bleak movie when you think about it. And in the uh, the lower class children, the future of the system is literally built at the expense of the bodies of the children of the lower class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just think about that for a second. I th- I really think it has a good thing to say, or not a good thing, but a. Uh, a message about in what ways are we leveraging or mortgaging our children's futures to sustain a, a system that needs to be broken. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the parts that I thought was interesting, and it was this crowd is first starting out in their, their journey from the back of the train, and they face all of the the soldiers or guards, whoever they are, with guns. And there's this realization suddenly that there's they have no bullets, and somebody yells, they've got no bullets. And, you know, I thought there was something interesting going on there that, you know, it's kind of this, they ha- we are afraid of them, but really they have no teeth. They hold us down just with fear and just with these ideas of you need to stay in your place. Any thoughts about that? I don't know. I, I think I guess I find myself in the minority here on this, too. I, I just I am an optimist. Like, I think that I don't know if you guys have uh, heard of Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, for example, where he spends a lot of time looking at, you know, the role of violence in society and how it's, you know, in the midst of a multi-century decline. And if you even look at, uh, you know, rates of poverty in some of the poorest countries in the world um, and longevity and that sort of thing, there's all kinds of reasons for optimism. But I think one of the things this film, you know, makes me think about is, you know, it plays to our desire to be pessimistic, to act as if things have never been worse than they are right now uh, and that things are only going to get worse from here. Whereas if you were to bring somebody here from, the year 1200, you know, who's living in the underclass in in uh, England or any European country, they would think this was, they think they would have gone to heaven and they will watch everyone walking around saying, oh, things could never be worse. Sure. So, I mean, and I think that's one of the problems I have with this film. Again, it's it's one hand clapping. So, okay, you got to break the system and replace it with what? You de- derail the train, you end up in the middle of a uh, frozen landscape um yeah there's a bear surviving out there but sooner or later you're going to have to create a system so does that are you telling me that um you know the guy who blows up the train has something inherent about him that is going to cause him to avoid simply recreating another version of the train are we that arrogant to think that any one of us are somehow above people like trump who who profit off the system and kind of laugh at the rest of us because they've managed to profit do we think that we have something in us better? I don't. I don't think so. But I, I, at the I same, have so, to believe so. Yeah, I. I, I don't. I mean, because I, again, if you look at the, the evil that that is perpetuated in the world, it's not done by exceptionally evil people. It's done by people like you and me who are caught up in mass movements. Anyway, put this. I, I'll put it this way. I'm. I'm optimistic. I think that humankind is. I. I. I very much look forward to the future. But at the same time, I feel that. 
we are we have this pessimistic mindset, and for some reason we want that fed over and over and over again. And I, I'm kind of mystified uh, as to why we would be so pessimistic in an age where there's so many reasons for optimism. Yeah, you know, I I would agree, Kevin, and I I am often very frustrated with especially Christianity's tendency to be very best pessimistic about the arc of history. <laughs> And just even where we are in, in in history right now, but isn't that is isn't that idea that any of those who are coming to power or starting the system over again will just recreate the same thing? Isn't that again kind of the a pessimistic Pessimism. view of humanity? Well, I think it's realistic. I mean, I think that we can see. This is one of the problems. I think is that. We look at certain individuals or certain systems or certain countries or whatever as a repository, some kind of a unique repository of evil, as opposed to looking at ourselves and saying, how are we complicit in a system? So my, my reason for optimism is if we think that all we have to do is blow up the system to fix it, well, no, that, I'm pessimistic about that as, as producing any kind of positive outcome. But if, if looking at a system like this causes us to look inward and to say, you know what? We're not facing a problem created by an individual or a few individuals. We're all somehow complicit in this. And so how can we work together to, you know, to do something else? So I guess that's what I'm saying in terms of, um, whether you take over the train or blow up the train, what next is my question? Yep. Because I think you're still pointing the finger at someone else and saying, okay, we've dealt with the problem. Now things are going to be fine. Well, no, they're not because you're still there. I think there are two things to that I think of at the ending that kind of could go either way. Um, one is the two kids get off the train and they're eaten by the polar bear, um, which is a, you know, that things aren't really rosy for them at the end. I mean, they're two kids going to start over where there's no civilization. But the thing I was thinking about, too, is one of the kids who survives is the kid who was taken from the the back of the train up to Wilford's compartment. Um, and then I think about Curtis's story about how after Gilliam cut off his arms, everyone was offering to cut off their arms. And going back to some of the religious aspects to this, so that really made me think of you know the early church and everything was in common. But I, w I would hope that that – you know, that kid growing up in a culture where people are willing to do that, you know, even if it, they're the ones at the back of the train being oppressed, we see them as the ones with still in touch with their humanity while everyone at the front of the train is kind of drugged. Hopefully that that was instilled in him and he, he can do better because he's been raised around people who do show humanity. I was just thinking also about the cutting off the hand thing and that I think maybe there's something very subtle in that, in that story. They're uh, having this conversation about how people began to cut off their hands so that everyone could live. And there's, then there seemed to be this, it, it began to be a positive society. But then mm -hmm. when, when the people from further up in the train started to bring them food, it seemed to degrade the situation again. The self-sacrificing ideas that began to, to shape their small little society at the back of the train were squashed when their needs were being taken care of. So once it was required to no longer sacrifice themselves for their provisions to be met, the, the community kind of disintegrated again, did it not? Once they were relying on, you know, the front of the train for their supplement, you know, for their physical nutrition, they no longer needed one another. 
And here's what I think. I think that maybe the front of the train, whether it was Mr. Wilford or whoever else, once they saw that self-sacrificial act of cutting off the arm so that people could eat, he saw the power in that. And he didn't want them to have the power of self-sacrifice, the power of providing for yourself, the power of living without a system. Mr. Wilford needed the people on the back of the train to be in need of the system. This is very, it gets very difficult because just, I mean, like Kevin was saying, is there a system that is inherently better? And, you know, it seems like the system that this film is criticizing, to me, it seems like it comes down to capitalistic society. If it's criticizing that, is it holding up something else as ideal? That's very often our fault when we criticize what we are in the middle of now. We don't necessarily have an idea that's better or or if it is if we do think it's better it's not something that we've ever experienced and know if it really works out yeah well, i think that's one of the points i've tried to articulate is that we you know we we become very self-righteous and we you know get very upset about things but um what do we actually have to offer as a solution i mean that's and and again i, I come back to this question is you know we, we tend not to look at ourselves. We tend to point the finger at somebody else rather than say that we, you know, how are we functioning as citizens? Because I, I believe that my background, you know, educationally has to do with um, social work and specifically working with young offenders and looking at crime. And so how does the very fact of how a young person is processed through the juvenile justice system actually um, cause that person to have a criminal identity. And so then how can you process young offenders in ways that don't criminalize them even further than they already are? But also looking at really what are taking a really systemic approach to deviance, you know, so when deviance, somebody deviates from the norm in society, we tend to look at it as an individual act, a willful act of defiance, but, but more often than not, they're symptomatic of a broader social problem. You know, it's too hard to look at that because that usually means we bear some responsibility, so we tend to point the finger at individuals. So, I, you know, I, I think, though, what this movie's trying to do is trying to blow up that idea, mm-hmm. is, you know, to, to – because by the time, you know, this guy gets to the front of the train, it's not as if he is arriving there because he knows the solution to the train. He has yeah. nothing. Yeah. And I think the filmmaker's kind of having a little bit of a joke with that. The white guy, the white man with a plan has nothing. So we've mentioned a couple times that it's the white guy. It seems like maybe there's a little bit of racial stuff going on here, or maybe that's just a bit of subtext. Does anybody have any any thoughts about that? I don't know if it's so much racial as it is, you know, casting a critical eye about America, thinking they're going to run in and solve all the problems. Um, I, I don't think it's a accident that he hired Chris Evans for this, um, who is Captain America. Um, they, I, I think. Yeah, I I think it really comes down to he's going to save the day. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to get to the front of the train and make everything better. And he realizes, you know, Wilford looks kind of like him. And it's really the prisoner from middle of the train who had the whole idea of what they need to do all along. And, and the ones at the very end who maybe are responsible for starting society over again are a black child, a bottom-of-the-barrel oppressed black child, and a drug-addicted Asian girl. 
to contrast. That's true. She's clairvoyant too. <laughs> Always a help. <laughs> One of the lines toward the end, I, I think it's from Wilfred. He says, the train is the world, we are the humanity. And that was echoed throughout the movie in different things that are said in the educational car, even at the very beginning by the people in the back. This idea that this is the world. And I think that has something to say about the way people who are in some kind of system or the people who are in control of the system see and understand it. This is all we see, and this is the world, and there's nothing else, even when there is another way. Well, I think that's true in the sense that we all develop a sense of myopia, you know, about our system. It's it's very hard for us to get perspective, either historically or geographically. So I kind of joke, uh, you know, about this idea of how so many people were saying Obamacare was going to mean the end of the world. And just waving my hand up here in Canada saying, hello, we've had universal health care here for like 40 <laughs> years and, and we're surviving, you know, and in fact, our, you know, our whole system seems to be doing better than yours right now but there's that it's it's just very difficult to get perspective um because we you know we yeah the there's those in power define what is you know and so it's it's very easy to fall prey to that and consider other options and i think maybe that's one of the things the filmmaker's trying to say i mean by putting it on a train is that we're just thinking too linear you know about everything and i think your point about you know the people in the bottom look up and and the people on the top look down to make sure those people on the bottom don't come and take what they have, you know, but who's looking right or left or up or down, you know, different directions. And yeah. maybe it takes a disaster to make us see things differently. I think maybe, maybe some uh, kind of some final ideas and we'll wrap up looking at maybe the church Christian parallels here toward the very beginning when the, the woman who seems to be in pretty high authority, May, Minister Mason comes back and she gives this basically the speech about everybody being in their place. And I thought that speech was very, very familiar, very, very similar to first Corinthians 12. And I don't know if that's completely intentional or not, but it seemed to be very much about each person has a place. If you are a hand, you're a hand. If you're a foot, you're a foot. Just like when Paul's talking about the body of Christ and everybody has a place. There was a lot of religious language in that speech. Do we sometimes, within the church, put this extra burden on people to not deviate from your role? And is the film saying something about that? Can I speak to that just real quick? Yeah, uh, it's very easy for the people who are in power and the people who have everything they need and those who are in control of the system to say, stay in your place. Um, and it's almost abusive for them to say that. I have heard that scripture or scriptures like it. I've heard pastors use scriptures like that to tell women to stay with their abusive husbands. So it's very easy for people who are in power to say, oh, you just need to stay in your place and mind your P's and Q's. And it's completely different for uh, if somebody was saying that that was in your same kind of cast. Well, we should definitely have casts in sure. the film, right? It would be different if that was coming from somebody who shared a social space with me. But to come that from somebody from high up down to somebody down low, of course they're going to say, oh, stay in your place because they don't want to be threatened out of their space. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Um, that, that passage in First Corinthians 
when understood, it's a beautiful passage. Oh, yeah. It's you know, you know, I I need the hand to help me. I need the foot to help me, and I need to be someone else's hand to help them. But you can twist that, and I think that's what people do when they want to keep people in their line is they twist everything. They they can twist those passages. It's very easy to take language. I mean. I I think there's a lot of addressing in the church that needs to be done about you know the way people have treated gender roles and taking biblical passages and you know twisting them to exert domination over someone and I think that's what's going on it might be going what's going on here is this idea that you know what some people are born as a hand or they might be born as a foot and there are ways they can help each other I mean the people at the back of the train literally take their hands and give them to someone we learned. Um, but to keep them in line, they bring someone in who has authority, um, and I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't just mention how great Tilda Swinton is in this movie. She's so phenomenal in this. But they bring someone in with authority to use that language and keep them in their place because people, you know, they, they're afraid of people in authority. We give a lot of power to them simply because they hold a rank or they're in a certain social class. Yeah. Well kind of bottom line for this uh i'd recommend snowpiercer i think it's very interesting it um as i watched it a second time i thought maybe uh, there there were new things that i saw but i thought it might not be the kind of movie that's really very fun to watch over and over again it's not a uh it's not a star wars or back to the future but um, that's a slow burn (laughs) it is exciting i'd recommend it chris yeah, I, I I definitely would recommend it. Um, this was my second time watching it as well. I I was just reminded how I, I actually do find it a fun experience. Um, I think the action in this movie is so so varied. the The look of this film continues to shift. I love that scene in the school car with Allison Pill just acting insane. I, I love that whole scene. I love the imagination behind this. And I do like that it, it gives thought to some deeper issues. And I, I think, you know, it's definitely not subtle, but I think it dresses it up in enough uh, in enough color and energy that it kind of makes that go down a little bit easier. Yeah. Kevin? Uh, you know, I'm always hesitant to criticize, you know, another filmmaker. And, and I would never really criticize the filmmaker so much as just sort of – I don't know. I guess I feel like the movie stylistically is interesting and I feel that it uh, has a lot of half developed ideas, but I don't think it's half as profound as people think it is. I think that there's a bandwagon effect happening here. <laughs> Last thoughts, Terry. I thoroughly enjoyed the film. Uh, you know, I, I, like, like I said, dystopian uh, literature and film is like my go to. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it does have a lot to say to society some criticisms and some warnings and uh, I think it's an important piece of um, literature that everybody needs to experience very good I uh, you know I, I appreciate things that that can allow us to have conversations and uh, even if the ideas aren't all there that it can at least lead to some conversation so I, I appreciate Snowpiercer in that in that way because uh it can it can allow us to have conversations like this and hopefully things that will will bring up conversations for other people as we close up could uh just let you guys share a little bit about where you are if anybody wants to hear more from you chris uh yeah you can find 
my podcast, It's My Favorite, at itsmyfavorite.podbean.com and on iTunes. Uh, you can read my film reviews at localcelebsdetroit.com, and you can read some of my uh, deeper discussions on film and faith and parenthood at criticisms.com. I'm also on Twitter at criticisms. Great. Kevin, where can we find you? Uh, well, I, I was blogging on Patheos. I haven't blogged for a long time, so you can find me on Facebook. Um, and uh, I uh, you can find my films on Netflix or Amazon or wherever. But, uh, yeah, What's Hellbound, up on Hellbound's on Netflix right now. I'm actually uh, in post-production on a new film called uh, Fractured. It's a documentary uh, about fossil fuels, and uh, we take a very different view of fossil fuels from the one Al Gore takes, believe it or not. And uh, yeah, so I uh, yeah, and you can check me out on IMDb. Maybe that's a good place. IMDb.com. Great, we'll be on the lookout for for fractured. Terry, where can we find you? You can find me on Facebook at Terry Cranford Smith. You can find me at Church of the Misfits. If you just Google Church of the Misfits Atlanta, you'll find my little faith community and our Facebook. We have a pretty impactful Facebook um, presence, so we're not hard to find there. And um, you can find me at notyetdivine.wordpress.com. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you joining me. Uh, again, I'm Jason Weedle. You can find my stuff at jasonweedle.com. And uh, please stay tuned for our next episodes where we will be talking about more films and how they relate to our life and our faith. Thank you, guys, for joining me. Appreciate the conversation. Mm-hmm.